Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 7, Episode 3. My name is Rick. I'm author of the Jesus Center Daily, a daily devotional that came out about a year ago. It's a daily plunge into the heart of Jesus from like 365 different trajectories. (laughs) So it also, uh, on the spine, you'll see it says it lists the five senses and it's an attempt to engage not only the head uh, the heart but all of the senses as well as we uh, dive into jesus so if if you haven't gotten your copy of the jesus center daily or um, if you have someone in your life that you think would really benefit from um, a short creative uh, lens that looks at jesus every day um, then pick one up. You can get it anywhere. Amazon's probably the best place to get it. Just look it up on Amazon, get that free shipping. Um, I'm also the author of the suicide solution. My latest book, it came out um, about four or five months ago now, maybe four months ago. It's an exploration of anxiety, depression, and suicidality, which is epidemic in the United States right now. It's an exploration of that through the lens of how Jesus made people whole and the latest clinical research into how to not respond to anxiety, depression, suicidality after it's gotten um, to the nth degree, but to respond proactively, preventively, um, all paired with uh, how Jesus helped uh, those who are following him to also live a life that uh, prevented the downward slide into depression. So that's the suicide solution. It's been out just for a little bit. You can also find that one on Amazon. So this is the eighth and final episode in our ongoing focus on Jesus in the real world. Um, I made a decision, I think a a few weeks ago, that it's time for a shift. And starting with the next episode, we'll be diving into a new series, um, and I'm calling it uh, the ways of Jesus. So we'll be exploring how Jesus lived his life and how he has invited us to live our lives, um, living by the values, customs, and practices of the kingdom of God and how distinct they are from the kingdom of this world. So, um, I'm excited to get kick that one off in our next episode, but in this episode, we're going to wrap up Jesus in the real world by a second exploration into what I'm calling our moral compass. So this is moral compass number two. <laughs> Wasn't uh, it, it too much to cover here in just one episode. So we'll, we'll close this off with a second episode today. So I was uh, poking around uh, after the, the first episode on our moral compass. I was poking around on YouTube, uh, just trying to see if somebody had explored how to build a moral muscle in a person. Uh, what, are the, what are the typical flows into that? How do people actually build a moral foundation? And I stumbled upon a interesting video called How to Build a Moral Robot. I will put a link to this video on our episode page on SoundCloud so you can watch it yourself. But it basically tells a story of a team of Ivy League researchers who are trying to program a robot to learn and act morally. This this, uh, effort is ongoing right now. They're they're simply trying to figure out how can we make robots act and think morally? Um, And it sounds like a a, a simple quest, but it's incredibly complicated when you think about how do you teach a machine to have a moral foundation? So uh, I, along the way, I plucked some quotes out from, from this uh, video that were fascinating and stuck out to me. One of them was one of the researchers said, we don't have any concrete rules about what's right and wrong, at least ones we've managed to agree upon. 
So this is the challenge. He was trying to describe the challenge they're facing. We don't have any concrete rules about what's right and wrong. And you think you might think, first of all, well, yes, we do. But then sink a little deeper and think about all of the different um, vantage points human beings on the face of the earth have around what's right and wrong. And suddenly <laughs> the quest becomes complicated. So why don't we have concrete rules about right and wrong that we can agree upon? Well, maybe it's outside of our capability as human beings to all agree on what's right and wrong. We might agree on a sort of a overlapping set of things that we, we think are wrong. But I used to uh, uh, lead uh, groups of parents in a 90-minute workshop I called Fighting the Entitlement Dragon. And it was all about the role of entitlement in their kids' lives and the, and the role parents play in that. And one of the things we did, one of the exercises we did is I challenged little small groups of people to uh, uh, small groups of parents at tables to come up with things that they think are universally right or universally wrong. And what was fascinating is that the, uh, as, the, as the teams came up with their lists of universal rights, I invited the whole group to think about whether there was any exception to each one of the things on these lists. So we just took samples from the tables and then asked the whole group, can you think of any exceptions to the rule with, with this? And in every case, every time someone could see an exception to the rule where the thing that seemed like a universal right thing could be wrong, actually. Um, and what they learned through this is that this, this sense that, that everyone agrees on what's right and wrong is really actually shifting in the way that we look at it. And that is the challenge these researchers faced in trying to program a computer. Um, we, we just have uh, uh, a shifting sense as human beings of what's right and what's wrong. And the, the culture can help dictate that as well. Uh, things that were right in the 1940s in America, for instance, are now seen as universally wrong. I mean, um, Jim Crow laws uh, that segregated whites and blacks in the South seemed right at the time. There's lots of smart people who supported those racist laws, but now they're seen as universally bad. So was it right or was it wrong from the start? Well, now we look back on it and say, well, that was wrong from the start. We forget that there's probably some things that we think right now are right, that in future years, we're going to say, of course, that was wrong. <laughs> so there's a shifting standard around what's right and wrong. Another quote from the video uh, from one of the re researchers, what we have instead, meaning instead of concrete rules about what are right and wrong, what we have instead are norms. Basically, thousands of fuzzy, contradictory guidelines. <laughs> so that's what the researchers decided that they're stuck with, uh, we human beings are stuck with, thousands of fuzzy, contradictory guidelines that we treat as norms. But the researchers went on to say, but we don't understand how humans use moral norms right now. So this is where it begins to get complicated. Um, moral living and moral decision-making seems kind of clear after the fact to us, but how do we get to those moral norms? What, how do moral norms work? How does this constellation of beliefs and, um, and convictions, how do they work together? Uh, what challenges are we facing when we move away from moral standards to moral norms? Another quote, from the researchers in this video, robots deal in absolutes. <laughs> now there's the problem, isn't it? Robots deal in absolutes. And we think, well, yeah, but moral decision-making or moral action is also an absolute, is it? Well, um, when you're trying to program a robot to make right choices, right moral choices, and all it can do is think in absolutes, you quickly run up against big problems. Makes it hard to create the sort of situational adjustments required by morality. So we can give a perfect example of this, even from scripture. Uh, Jesus uh, and the woman caught in adultery. So some conniving religious leaders plot 
to catch a woman uh, in the act of adultery, and they drag her, not the, not the man who was involved in this encounter, just her, they drag her before Jesus, and they're trying to trap Jesus, they're trying to turn the screws on him, and they ask him what should happen to her, uh, well aware of what the law says. And so, of course, the law is clear even for uh, uh, a Jew like Jesus who knew exactly what the law said, that this woman is deserving of death. Instead, Jesus responds by asking the, those religious leaders gathered there, you who has not sinned, you get to throw the first stone. And of course, we know the ending of that. They all drop their stones and they all leave. And the woman's life is spared. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. <laughs> hey, we all agreed that adultery was a moral wrong punishable by death. Why did you do that and get her off? Well, it's because um, uh, morality is not an absolute. Um, there are situational adjustments. There's a higher law being served here as Jesus inter interacts with these religious leaders. So does that throw everything up in the air then? Is everything fair game to question in our moral world? Well, um, that's what these researchers are trying to figure out. And boy, uh, if you watch this video, you'll see um, how, uh, how quickly they run into challenges in trying to do this. Um, one of the things they talk about in the video is the famous uh, moral experiment called the trolley experiment. And it's essentially, you give people a choice, that you give them a scenario and a choice. The scenario is there's a trolley running down some railroad tracks and there's a worker just ahead on the tracks who does not realize that there's a trolley coming his way and the trolley is going to run over this man. And there is a line switcher who sees this that's about to happen. And his choice is, do I keep the trolley on the track knowing it's going to kill this worker or I do I divert the trolley to save that man's life because I see what's about to happen, but by diverting it off the tracks, uh, basically kill everyone on the trolley. What decision should I make? This is called the trolley experiment. It's been used in many uh, research environments uh, for moral decision-making. So what's interesting about this is that in the research, they've discovered that um, if you ask people uh, if you tell the scenario two different ways, like in one scenario, there's a robot making the decision about whether to switch the trolley off the track or not. Um, there is a high degree of acceptance of that decision. If the robot makes the decision in an absolute way, there's six people on the trolley, only one person on the track. Therefore, I'm going to sacrifice the life of the one person to save the life of the six. So people are accepting of that decision if a, if a robot has made that decision. But if a person makes that decision, their acceptance of the decision goes way down. Why? Because um, we expect a robot to make a hard mathematical decision, right? So we expect that and actually we're relieved. But when a human being's involved, there are moral questions that make this tense and dissonance producing. It's the agency of the human being that makes this complicated. So, uh, so the trolley experiment um, underscores how difficult it is for us to um, embrace universal moral standards that do not depend on situations and and seem to require absolute solutions to them. This is very difficult for us. So the researchers working on this project have developed a hypothesis that in any particular situation, we access a constellation or sub-networks of similar moral beliefs. And then we decide what's applicable and useful in the situation. And we make our decision based on that. So we have like the, these, um, uh, multiple factors uh, orbiting around in a particular constellation. And we consult 
with those orbital factors to make the best decision we can in the moment, in the situation we're facing. So, um, so the, the researchers believe that communication around these moral decisions is also crucial, crucial for robots to learn, to take in new information that affects what they decide. Wow, you start to see how complicated this is. So one question looming above this is, does Jesus have moral norms or does he have moral standards? Or does he have something else? How does Jesus model and teach moral decision-making and behavior? What does he do? Well, um, does he make situational adjustments? We just looked at his interaction with the with a woman caught in adultery. It seems like he does. If he does make situational adjustments, then why is he doing that? How is he doing it? So, so th there you have a lot of questions <laughs> raised by this. And, and uh, this system of constellations of sub-networks of similar moral beliefs, how does that compare and contrast to our relationship with Jesus? So for instance, if new information, if, if new information comes into our situation and it, does it matter whether that new information comes from us or from outside of us? So are we okay making moral decisions in a closed system and the closed system is ourselves? Or are we only um, walking in obedience and righteousness when we make moral decisions that have access to outside influence. In this case, the outside influence would be Jesus. <laughs> so uh, we, we hear from the researchers that moral norms aren't fixed. Does that also mean that Jesus's moral norms aren't fixed? Hmm. And if we expect a robot to decide based solely on the math, which is an absolute, uh, and we don't expect that of human beings, do we expect that of God? Uh, is God making his moral decisions, is Jesus making his moral decisions based on math, on absolutes? So all of this matters as we try to embrace what it means to live with a moral compass inside, a moral compass that is trustworthy. So one of the things I did in this quest is I gave a group of young adults a quest. I divided the group into three groups, and I gave each group one of three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, or 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are basically the, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's most famous sermon. So uh, I, what I was asking these three groups to do was to make sort of a map of uh, Jesus's moral decision-making in his teaching in that particular chapter. So what, what kind of map could we come up with that maybe even maps Jesus's constellations of moral decision-making? What would we find if we paid attention? And so uh, I took the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, split it three ways, and gave three different groups a chance to dig in and see what they saw uh, about Jesus' moral map. Um, now, the Sermon on the Mount is an epic proclamation of the kingdom of God's moral map. Um, if you haven't read it in a while, it'd be a good idea to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And you'll notice if, if you are a person who reads, reads the Bible very often, you'll notice that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 stand out uh, in the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus because never again does he simply deliver a sermon that is that long to people. Never again does he simply have one-way communication like you see in, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he is just proclaiming something for a long time to a group of people. Well, why? Why is that true? I think uh, what he's really doing is he's trying to contrast the, the ways of the kingdom of God with the ways of the world. And he's using a shock and awe strategy to, to make this comparison. Um, he is 
uh, point after point mapping a moral universe that stands in stark contrast with the norms of the current culture, even the religious norms of the current culture. So uh, what do we discover when we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and try to understand what's at the core of his moral constellation and what are the things that are orbiting it? Well, in this group, uh, when the three groups came back, uh, what was fascinating is that they each group from their own different trajectory essentially pointed out, surfaced, highlighted the same things um, that they saw in Jesus in each one of these chapters. And one of them uh, offered up a famous phrase from Cicero. This person was a <laughs> this person was an English literature major in college, so um, they know Latin phrases of Cicero. <laughs> uh, but this this uh, Latin phrase is "esse quam videre," which means to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. Now, this particular group used that as their umbrella understanding of the moral center of Jesus, what he was trying to teach, that in all ways, it is the, the highest standard is to simply be rather than to seem, meaning there's a purity that flows from the outside and how you experience uh, how you experience someone, how you experience God, and that purity flows all the way to the center. There's no difference. So some words that flowed uh, from all of these three groups that, that kind of animated this phrase, essay quam videre, some, some words that animated that phrase are things like complete, that Jesus was uplifting and embracing and advocating completeness, wholeness, or intentional is another way of saying that where there's an intent behind something that is not twisted, but pure. And, and if you taste it on the surface, you'll get the same taste you get at the core. Um, completeness. And the source of this completeness, all three groups said, that Jesus promoted, was the spirit of Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the three members of the Trinity, and Jesus essentially was trying to say, that the outside standard for what is right and wrong is communicated through a relationship, a trusting relationship with the spirit, so that the spirit is the one influencing the situational um, applications of morality, meaning that there is a solid moral core in the heart of God but it is expressed differently in different situations. And the way to know how to express that is through a trusting relationship with the spirit, the outside influence on our decision-making process. So what does it look like to live a moral life? One that emphasizes to be rather than to seem. How, how do we live a life that is driven by essay quam videre? Or uh, we, could, we could take it a different way and, and use Francis Schaeffer's uh, question that drove his whole life, which was, how should we then live? How should we then live? It's the how that's so important here. How do we come to a place where we live a morally impactful life where goodness is, is both the fuel of our life and the fruit of our life. How do we live that way? Well, Paul, as it turns out, the Apostle Paul wrote his letters, letter to the followers of Jesus living in Galatia after he was alarmed by reports that he was hearing about them sort of backsliding into a life of slavery to the law is what he called it. The law, he said, is like a guardian that was, that's keeping us safe until the Galatians could experience real freedom. Sort of like uh, he compares this to sort of like children who receive an inheritance when they're of age. Um, so what he's, what he's saying here is that the, the law was true, but temporary in the sense that 
it acted as a guardian until the real source of that law could actually become a relational source instead of a read it in the book source. And that's what he was simply trying to tell the Galatians. So I'm going to read actually a good chunk of Galatians here, just so you can hear what Paul says about this. So here we go. Uh, Galatians 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to finish it up with 16 through 26. We're going to skip over a little middle area here. So Galatians 5. So Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. So circumcision here is, is, a, is a stand-in for all of the dictates of the law. So he's not just talking about circumcision here. He's talking about um, always that following the law portends to make us right with God. So he's saying if, if that's what you're counting on, then Jesus is of absolutely no benefit to you. And implied there is it, keep at it, keep trying. Let's see how that goes when you're trying hard to be better in a, a million trillion different ways. Let's see how that works for you. He's saying Jesus is of no benefit to you if that's what you're counting on. And then uh, continuing in verse three, I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. But if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. Meaning, if that's what you're trying to do, then you're no longer attached to Jesus. You're, you're not accessing his goodness, his moral center. You're, you're essentially a closed system. You're trying to do it on your own. And here in the last part of verse four, Paul says, if, you, if you're doing that, you have fallen away from God's grace. But he says in verse five, but we who live by the spirit eagerly wait to receive faith by the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Here, Paul is saying, hey, you know, there's no benefit to following these, these laws that portend to make you righteous if you complete them, but they really don't because they separate you from the whole source of goodness, which is Jesus. He's saying what's really important is faith, faith meaning a intimate relationship with Jesus that finds expression in love, and that the outcome of living well, morally, connected and attached to the spirit of Jesus, the outcome of that is love. That in every situation, your moral decision-making would result in loving the person or loving yourself um, uh, in that situation. So skipping forward to verse 16, here, here he continues. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your own good intentions. But when you're directed by the spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. So he's saying there's a shift happening here. You're shifting your allegiance to a, a relationship with the spirit and away from the lists of obligations to the law of Moses, that the, the way that you're guided morally becomes an internally driven thing rather than an externally driven thing. And the internal drive is your dependence on the spirit. Picking up in verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery. I'm going to keep going here. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. It's interesting. It always makes me laugh in this long list that Paul gives. That right in the middle there is wild parties. Watch out for those. Um, so let me tell you again, Paul says, as I, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
meaning anyone who lives that way, is not living out the values, customs, and practices of the kingdom of God. The, the two are at odds. Here in verse 22, he, he continues, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. And this is very intentionally contrasting to the, the fruits of um, the closed system of dependence on our own nature. Here are the fruits of the, the dependence and attachment to the spirit of Jesus. This is what happens when we do that, he says. What comes from that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let's not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. So here Paul is laying out a massive shift of how a person can live a life that exhibits rightness or righteousness. How, where does it come from? Does it come from our own strength and ability to follow the every detail of the law, or does it come from somewhere else? How do we live essay quam videri? How do we live a life where we are being rather than living to seem like we are being? <laughs> that is the challenge, right? So Paul's urging his friends in Galatia to not return to this life of trying harder to be better, to keep the law through self-discipline, for instance, as a guard on their morality. The, the role of the guardian is done now. The Messiah has come. The guardian can step aside now. Uh, and the children of God can come into their true inheritance. Now that they are of age, they're ready to step into their adult inheritance. That's the mission of Jesus in our lives. So Paul is urging freedom, but that also by nature produces tension in us. So, and what does that tension, you know, look and feel like if we're live, if we're going to live in the freedom of spirit dependence or a, a trusting relationship that guides our everyday moral practice, how do we do that? I love this uh, metaphor that author and pastor John Mark Coomer uses um, in this conversation. The metaphor he uses is a trellis. Um, and he talks about how um, a vine, a grapevine, for instance, um, needs a, a trellis, a, you know, if you can picture in your mind, some kind of structure that goes vertically out of the ground that the vine can wind itself around as it grows up. Otherwise the vine will stay on the ground and just grow in the dirt <laughs> and the quality of the grapes uh, suffers. Uh, vi vines need a trellis to grow. And in order to grow up, they need to have something to hang on to. Um, that's how they grow. So we can make the comparison that if we're going to grow our moral compass, we need something to hang on to as we grow up into that. If we're, if we're attached to the vine of Jesus, to follow his spirit means we create a framework in our lives to help us to grow into that maturity. We need something to hang on to. So what does our life trellis look like? What is that framework for growing into maturity in our dependence on the spirit? What does that look like? What would it include? And then what can we learn from the practices of Jesus and those who follow him um, uh, relative to our own trellis? So if a trellis is really like a lifestyle or habits that we, that we live in that help us to grow up into maturity, and help us to follow the spirit in our morality, what are those guides? Uh, so um, I, I have a series of Jesus encounters that I think are interesting to take a look at, and a couple of uh, dissertations, I guess you'd call them, from Paul 
that help us to um, understand what might be on that trellis. So here, I'm going to give you uh, some, some things I've plucked from Matthew 7, Matthew 18, Matthew 15, Matthew 23, some things that I've plucked out of the practice and teaching of Jesus that seem very clearly a part of our trellis. And then a few things from Paul as well, from Romans 12 and from Romans 6 and from Romans 10 um, that Paul talks about as well. So in one case, you have the, the source of all morality, the core of our morality, Jesus talking about what kinds of practices and habits lead to um, a trellis that helps us to grow up into maturity in our spirit dependence. And then you have Paul, who is actually trying to live this out in his, in his faith relationship with Jesus and the things that he's learned um, and the things that he's incorporated into his trellis. So let's take a look at uh, just some of the things that I plucked out of this little sampler. Uh, it's, not, it's not extensive. It's just a good start on the trellis. Let's take a look. It's important to remember here, the trellis is not a new set of rules. It's, it's not a new try hard to get better list. It's simply a support structure for growth. If you want to grow, these are the things you incorporate. And let's also remember as we dive into this, the point is to live in the freedom of the spirit Freedom of the spirit is another way to say to live in relationship instead of trying harder to follow the words on the page and the, the things that we've been told, the rules and regulations. Instead, we've made our shift to freedom in the form of a relationship. And that relationship was with the spirit of Jesus. So here are some things that we could put on our trellis drawn from these various sources I just told you about. So first, the first one is acknowledge the weight of sin. It's damaging. Name that. Instead of skirting the impact of sin and, and, and its impact on our lives, name it. So if you've betrayed someone, if you've lied to someone, if you've um, acted entitled in your life in some way, if you have... Um, intentionally hurt someone or skirted, um, skirted around boundaries and by doing so um, have harmed others, uh, that we name it. We acknowledge the weight of that sin. We acknowledge the, the weight of it. So I'm going to say something now that is controversial, but it fits here. Um, there is a, has been a growing movement in our country an attention around whether or not we are going to embrace some of the uglier aspects of our country's history. Um, anyone who believes that the United States, for instance, as a collective, has been morally pure in the in its entire existence is really uh, that's one of the most ridiculous beliefs I can imagine. How could that be possible with human beings making up? The, the, the nature of America. It's not possible. It's just normal to say, just like it's normal to say with us as individuals, that, that we are not morally pure. We've made lots of terrible mistakes, and that doesn't diminish um, respect or admiration for this experiment in democracy. It doesn't diminish in any way. It actually accentuates it because you're acknowledging that this is an experiment made by human beings who are uh, endemically flawed. So why are we having so much trouble embracing some of the ugly aspects of our past, including the clear relationship we have had with racism in our past? It's clear. It couldn't be more clear. And it's not going to destroy respect for our country if we embrace the reality of that, of, of that brokenness. It, it would be, uh, to me, like if if I went through my life simply defending the thought that I've never made an impure, ugly, damaging decision that has hurt other people in my life. And I've always had others' best in mind when I've done what I've done. 
well, that would be ridiculous. I'm not even sure how anyone could be in relationship with me if that's the kind of self, uh, uh, self-opinion I had. So, so here, acknowledging the weight of sin means acknowledging the weight of sin, even as a country that we've had. That is the way of Jesus, to acknowledge that weight and the damage that it causes, both individually and collectively. It is part of the kingdom of God to drag what is in the darkness into the light, because the enemy of God likes to drag things from the light into the darkness, because the enemy of God, we know from Jesus, is a liar, and he's been a liar from the dawn of time. And all that ever comes out of the enemy of God's mouth is deception, and deception depends on darkness. Uh, You cannot deceive others without hiding things in the dark that you don't want them to see. That's how deception works. So in the kingdom of God, truth is the standard, and that means all things uh, hidden in the dark come to light, including the weight of our sin. Another thing on the trellis of our growing maturity into spirit dependence, be aware of what's ruling you. Be more self-aware. What is guiding you in this particular moment? Where are you getting your guidance about what's right and wrong in this particular moment? I was in a a conversation with um, a bunch of ministry leaders uh, last week. We were sitting around eating dinner and um, conversations strayed to television shows that people were watching. And uh, someone that I was uh, sitting there with told me about a show that he and his daughter watched that I'd never heard of. And he said, of course, you haven't heard of it. (laughs) It's not the kind of show I don't think you would watch. And so I was asking him questions about the show and, and the show was about uh, drugs and the violence that grows up around drug addiction and drug dealing and the drama that grows up around that. And, um, and then that led into a discussion about the show Yellowstone. And then the precursor to that show, I think it's called 1883 or something like that. Um, and uh, then it led into discussions about other shows that people were watching. And I, I remember thinking after the end of that night, I don't watch these shows, but I know their premise. I've read their reviews. I've read descriptions of them. And I know what kind of moral universe is, is represented in these shows. And to think that, okay, so this is a a mini rant. I promise it'll only take 15 seconds. If we think that we can fill our media diet by anything we want, no matter how morally repugnant it is, and not be impacted by it, then we must also think that we can eat as many donuts or pieces of cake that we want without it impacting our body. Of course it impacts us. The same way poor eating impacts our body, a poor media diet impacts our soul. And if we are not aware of the things, of the belief systems and norms that we have subtly ingested from the things that we eat on, especially in our media diet, then we're being fools. It's foolish to not be aware (laughs) and then to choose out of that awareness. And this is part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is encouraging us to put on our trellis, always be aware of what's ruling you in this moment so that you have bring your agency, your intentionality to the choices you make in life instead of being simply floating with the current or obeying the hidden ruler inside. Be aware of what's ruling you. Another thing on the trellis, um, be aware of what you're consuming in every area. So this is tied into be aware of what's ruling you, be aware of what you're consuming. Doesn't just mean your media diet, but like, for instance, in your conversations with people, are you often drawn into um, uh, judgments about other people who are not part of the conversation? Are you often drawn into those conversations? Does it do something for you? When you participate in those conversations, does it make you feel better about yourself when you develop judgmental attitudes toward others who are not part of the conversation? That's a consumption mentality that is going to pollute your soul. It's not possible to engage in that kind of uh, 
of consumption on a regular basis and not have it spill over into your relationships. It just won't happen that way. It twists and, and pollutes your relationships. So if that's what you're consuming, um, then in the, if we're living in the kingdom of God, we acknowledge what we're consuming. We don't hide it. We put it, pull it out into the light and say, this is what I'm consuming and here's how it's impacting me. Jesus is again, promoting intentionality. Um, another thing that we can put on the trellis as a lifestyle, a habit in our life, slow down, remove distractions from your life for, for um, seasons of your day, seasons of your week, seasons of your month, seasons of your year, slow down, remove distractions and open up your interior life to the spirit. Let the spirit um, reveal to you where your heart is at. D David said in one of his Psalms, um, uh, uh, as he was seeking God, he was asking God to explore him, to, to, um, to shine a light on, on the soul inside. I'm not remembering the particular Psalm right off the top of my head. Uh, that, that this thing that G, that Paul, that David talked about just popped into my head here, but essentially what he's doing is he's saying, search me and know my heart. There it is. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. What David is doing there is he's saying, I'm going to slow down so that you can search me and know my heart to push in on what's going on inside. Um, and to reveal the ways in which I have consumed things that are affecting my heart. Um, I'm opening myself to you and asking you to search me. That's part of the, of the trestle of our maturing relationship with the spirit. And as we do, we drag things into the light. Anything that the spirit finds there that's, that we've been hiding in the dark corners, we find a way to drag into the light. All of this, you, you can see a theme here that comes through from some of these of a kind of a self-awareness, um, a kind of a, a way of living that pays attention to what's going on under the hood. So um, what, what are you pursuing in your life? What are you forgiving or not forgiving in your life? All of these things intentionally paying attention to. Um, uh, last few things on the trestle here. Uh, prioritize the strength of your foundation. Um, in, and that means the strength of your foundation is really your relationship with Jesus. I don't mean more Bible reading and more Bible teaching. I mean, I mean setting the stage for intimacy in your relationship with Jesus. That means not only your prayer life, but um, what does it mean to listen to the spirit of Jesus in your life? Are you practiced at listening to the spirit of Jesus in your life? Not just telling him things in your prayer, but asking him to give guidance and understanding and insight to you. Are you practiced in this? Um, uh, and some of this involves acknowledging uh, on a feeling level what, what our emotions are all about. Um, our emotions are often... Um, the fruits of something hiding there deep in the darkness. So if we can follow our emotions back down to their source, we might be able to take what has been hiding in the darkness and put it in the light. This leads to a kind of freedom. If, you're, if, if the spirit has helped to drag these things out of the darkness into the light, then the anxiety and fear we feel, feel in our everyday life goes away because it's all been out there and exposed. We have nothing to hide anymore. The spirit will let us know if there's something hiding there that we need to drag out into the life. So all of this leads to what we might call perfection or wholeness, or what Paul, what Paul is calling freedom in, in his letter to the Galatians. It means we are free from the anxious living that is so familiar to us. Um, that's what growing our, uh, uh, growing our grapevine up the trestle looks like we, when we 
head toward maturity. It's not that we're not messy, broken people. It's simply that we have included, uh, included things in our life that naturally help us to grow into maturity. And this is a little snippet, a little, um, yeah, a, a, a little sampler of what that might look like. But here is, here is a way for you to enter into uh, whatever Bible reading you do devotionally. If you can think about um, this lens of the trestle, learning from Jesus, learning from Paul, learning from the other New Testament writers in particular, um, well, what, what really feeds a lifestyle, a trellis that my vine can catch on to to help grow upward in, in its dependence on the spirit? What, what are some things that I see lead to that? What am I hearing Jesus say? What am I hearing Paul say and Peter say and John say um, about what that looks like in real life? And then what kind of habits um, can I start to incorporate into my life that will build up my trestle so that um, as I mature, I become more and more sensitive to the spirit of Jesus, guiding and directing me in a wide variety of situations, helping me to know what's right and not right in any particular situation. That system has way more traction than whatever the system those researchers are going to plant in that robot, <laughs> I have to say. Well, there you have it. So that is our little mini series on the moral compass. Uh, again, next episode, we'll start off with our first one on the ways of Jesus. Can't wait to dive into that. So that'll be our next episode. Um, and uh, meanwhile, you can head over to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com or to uh, SoundCloud and look for Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus on soundcloud.com. That's where you can find the posting of this latest episode. And I will definitely put a link to that robot video there. So that's where you can find it. All right, this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes. We'll see you again next time.